You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. We seem to be having a little bit of problem with the, the microphones getting enough juice out of them this morning without uh, feeding back. You know, those sound systems are as temperamental as people are. <laughs> uh, when they're in a good mood, they work fine, and when they're not feeling too good, they just don't work very good. Ron, see if you can just push it up, or I'm going to be hoarse before this morning's over with. Be Not a horse, but I'm going to be hoarse. Okay, see if you can push it just a little more until it starts feeding back, and then we'll, we'll back off just a hair. Test. Doesn't feel like it's really increasing much at all. Is that getting a little bit better? A little more comfortable for your ears? Okay. All right. Now, I guess it wouldn't be comfortable for me unless it was just blasting the back wall off because the, uh, maybe I feel a little bit more powerful that way when you've got a loud microphone. Uh, <laughs> take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. While you're doing that, I've said to you before that our particular pathway of studying through the scriptures or my particular style of preaching is an expository style and that means you basically take a book in the bible and you begin with the first verse in the first chapter and you preach it verse by verse until you come to the end of that book and that's what we've been doing for about five or six months now through the book of ephesians and we've come to a passage in the fifth chapter now beginning in just a few moments with about the third verse and i've said to you that that kind of preaching brings with it an awful lot of blessing in the long run i believe that god's people grow more In the long run, I'm challenged more because I don't get to just pick and choose the passages that I want to preach. You know, it's easy when you just preach a different passage somewhere in the Bible every Sunday. A preacher can go through and and just pick out all the the sweet spots, you know, in the Scripture and all those places that are are really uh, he wants to preach. And oftentimes what happens is a guy begins to just preach the things that just kind of minister to him and speak to him. But the style of preaching that that we've adopted and that I've adopted for myself doesn't give me the freedom to do that. I believe there are a lot of blessings that come with that, but there are also some liabilities that come with that every now and then. And one of those liabilities that is that all of the Scripture is equally as inspired, but not all of it is equally inspiring. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, the genealogies of, of Matthew are just as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it's not quite as inspiring to the hearer or to the reader or to the listener. And I've had this particular message prepared for three weeks. I was going to preach this message some three weeks ago, and God just wouldn't turn me loose. And I just couldn't let go and go ahead and preach that message. And so that particular Sunday morning, I backed up and punted a little bit, and I preached a passage out of the Gospel of John. And then last Sunday, we skipped ahead a little bit toward the end of the fifth chapter because of it being Mother's Day, and and I preached on the uh, maximum marriage with minimal misery. And uh, if you were here, then you know that we dealt with some of the closing verses of chapter 5. But today, we've come back, and we must come back and pick up these verses in chapter 5. And quite honestly, I've struggled with this message. I struggled with it in preparation, and I pray that the Spirit of God will just set me free where I won't struggle with it in preaching this morning. And I want to say to you, though, that this message or these verses of Scripture are just as inspired as any verses in all of God's Word, it just may mean that sometimes they're maybe a little bit more challenging for us as we study them 
than some of the other places in the Word of God. So you pray this morning that not only the Lord will, will turn me loose and let me communicate the truth of the Scriptures, but that He'll also turn you loose and let the truth of the Scriptures be communicated to you. I want to preach this morning on the topic of the walk of light. And we're going to read in just a few moments just a couple of verses, and then later we're going to study about 15 verses in this chapter. The last time that we were dealing with chapter 5, I... Uh, was in the second verse. We just dealt with one verse of Scripture that Sunday, and it, we entitled that message, The Walk of Love. Chapter 5, the entire chapter, as a matter of fact, deals with the lifestyle of the Christian. That's what chapter 5 is devoted to as you read it, as you study it. As a matter of fact, the Scripture uses, for the lifestyle of the, script, the, uh, the, the Christian, the Scripture uses the word walk. Anytime that you, you hear that, that phrase, walk as this or walk as that in the Bible, it is always referring to your personal lifestyle as you go about living in daily life. And so with that in mind, in chapter 5, the word walk is used three times. It's used three times in that chapter. And each time the word walk appears, it is used to describe a particular aspect of the Christian life. And so we said a few weeks ago when we studied chapter 2, or verse 2, that even as the physical walk of somebody tells you a little bit about their personality maybe, and a little bit about how they feel at that particular time, if someone's dragging their feet, it might tell you that they're just kind of a laid-back type of personality, or that maybe they're just a little bit tired. As someone's physical walk tells you something about their their, uh, their feeling at that particular time. So also, the Scripture says, that someone's spiritual walk tells you something about their spiritual welfare and their inner character. And so we began in verse 2, dealing with the walk of the Christian or the lifestyle of the Christian. Verse 2, Paul said, walk in love, even as Christ loved you. So we said that the walk of the Christian is first to be, first of all, to be a walk of love, that is motivated and characterized by the love that is characterized by the life of Jesus. He said that we are to walk in love even as Christ also loved us. That's the first aspect of the lifestyle of the Christian, that it is to be a life of love, a walk that is characterized by love. Now we come to verse 8, and that's going to be the key verse that we're going to read, and then later we're going to examine some other verses in the chapter. But in verse 8, Paul comes to the second characteristic of the Christian life when he says, walk in light. Let's read that together. He says, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And so in these verses, Paul is contrasting the Christian and the non-Christian lifestyle. He's contrasting the believers and the non-believers lifestyle, the lost man and the man who has been saved. He is contrasting those two lifestyles. And he says that they are as different as night and day. They are as different as light and darkness. The lifestyle of the non-believer is a polar opposite with the lifestyle of the believer. And his conclusion is going to be, because they are polar opposites, because they are as different as night and day, then it is foolish for a Christian who is light to live his life in the way of darkness. It's foolish for the child of God who walks in the light and has the light of Jesus to live a life that is characterized by the lostness of our dark world. And so as we study these verses today, I really only have a two-point outline for you this morning. You know that doesn't mean anything, but it's really only two points. The first one is in verses 3 and 4, the walk of darkness. Now notice in verse 8, first of all, he says, you were formerly darkness. 
And so Paul is going to contrast the walk in the darkness and the walk in the light in these verses of Scripture. Notice, first of all, the walk of darkness. You see, throughout the Bible, darkness and light are used to characterize the Christian and the non-Christian, the believer and the non-believer. And the Word of God says that before you knew Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, before Christ, you were in the darkness. And so in verse 8, Paul says, For you were formerly in darkness. You were formerly in darkness. Before you knew Christ, you were not just in darkness. Now listen to that. That's important. He says you were not just in the darkness, but he says you were darkness. Look at that again. For formerly you were darkness. That means that not only were you walking in darkness, but that darkness was walking in you. In other words, that you had been invaded, your heart, your life, your soul had been invaded by something, and it was the darkness of the world. Now think about that, folks, for just a moment. Think about it for just a moment. Before Christ, before you came to know Jesus, the Scripture says that your heart was a pit of darkness, that you were alienated from the life and the light of God. You were formerly darkness. Now Jesus explained that a little bit, little bit more clearly when he said in the Sermon on the Mount that the lamp, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye is clear, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, he said, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now what eye was Jesus talking about? Well, it's clear. He was talking about the spiritual eye. And he said, if your spiritual eye is dark, then your whole life, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. If your spiritual eye is light, then your whole body, your whole life is going to be characterized by light. But Paul says, you were formerly darkness. Darkness formerly characterized your entire attitude toward life. Darkness had invaded your very soul. Your soul was full of night. Now, it's a spiritual truism that what is inside ultimately is going to make its way to the outside. What is inside is ultimately going to find its expression on the outside. So if you are filled with darkness, if your life is characterized by darkness, then ultimately that is going to show itself in your walk. It's ultimately going to show itself in your lifestyle. And so Paul in these verses is warning the Christian about walking in the dark when you have the light of Jesus living within you. And in order to do that, he gives a description. It's a very clear description of the walk in darkness. I want you to notice this with me. First of all, notice the lifestyle of darkness. Verses 3 and 4. The lifestyle of darkness. Verse 3, Paul says, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. So in verse 3, what Paul does is he lists three characteristics of the lifestyle of darkness. Three things that are the antithesis, if you will, if you want to use a college word, that are the antithesis of the lifestyle of light, that are the exact polar opposite of the life that has Jesus, that is the life of light. And he mentions three things there in verse 3. First of all, he mentions immorality. But do not even let immorality be named among you, he says, as is proper among saints. In the original language, that word immorality is an interesting word. It is the word porneia. 
And that sounds probably familiar to you because we have anglicized that word in our English language. We take our word pornography from the Greek word porneia, which means immorality. It means a life that is characterized by fornication. The word literally means fornication. It means sexual sin. Paul says that is the lifestyle or the walk of darkness. It has no place in the life of light. It has no place among God's people. He says it belongs to darkness and it has nothing to do with light. Now, I know your first response. I see it on some of your faces this morning. Your first response on Sunday morning in our pious Sunday best, not only in our dress, but in our, our attitude, our actions. I mean, we feel good on Sunday. We feel pretty good on Sunday morning. We feel kind of pious on Sunday morning. And so your first response when you read that in the scripture is to say this, well, that really and truly doesn't have anything to do with us. I mean, that really doesn't have any, anything to apply to me because that's really not a temptation that I deal with. And you might think that in your mind right now, but you know it's not true, don't you? In daily life, out there walking in the world, you know that that's not true. You know that it's not true to say that that never is a temptation in your life. Why? Because you live and work in a world of darkness. That's why. You live and work around people who are people of the darkness of which immorality is an everyday part of life. It's a part of lifestyle. And that becomes a temptation for you and me as we must live in the world. And so Paul says, listen, folks, you formerly were in the darkness, but now you are light. And a part of the lifestyle of the darkness is immorality. Don't even let it be named among you. Put it aside. It's a real danger for every one of us. He says immorality is a, is a part of the lifestyle of darkness. But the second thing that he mentions you see why I said this is a difficult message for me to cut loose? I'd much rather just preach, get saved. <laughs> I'd much rather just preach, walk in love. But this is a part of the Word of God, folks, and you and I really and truly need to hear it. Take off your Sunday best, if you will, today. Take off the pious attitude and the pious air and put yourself in that place that you live and walk every day, every week, and hear the words of Paul. That's a part of the lifestyle of darkness that has nothing to do with light. When I was a youth minister, I used to say to my kids in my youth group, I dealt with them pretty straightforward and sometimes pretty tough because I think that sometimes that's exactly what needs to be done. But I used to tell my kids, my youth group, when they'd come to me talking about these temptations, the sexual temptations that they deal with, and, and all of them do, your kids alike deal with them, folks, whether you think they do or not. All of them deal with that. And I lived in, uh, day in and day out with, with those kids for for years and years and years as a minister of youth. And I came to the point finally where I told my kids, I said, listen, if you wait until you are in a car somewhere with the moon shining, the radio playing soft music, and some of you are saying, my kids will never do that. My kids will never even be there. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. You count on it, they will. So if you wait until you're out someplace with the moon shining and the radio is, is playing low and soft music before you make that decision, if you will or if you won't, you've already lost the battle. The battle has already been lost. The decision has got to be made before that. The decision has got to be made up front. And so Paul says, make the decision up front. That does not have anything to do with a lifestyle of light. Don't even let it be named among you. Don't give it any room in your life. Don't let it be even spoken about. So let's quit talking about it. Let's go on to the next one. Immorality. The next one that Paul mentions is impurity in verse 3. He says, 
but do not let immorality or any impurity be named among you. It's almost as if Paul is thinking there and he says, but I don't want to just limit it to this immorality thing. Uh, I want it to kind of include any kind of impurity. And so this word impurity that he uses is kind of a catch-all phrase. It's as if he doesn't want to limit it just to sexual sin, not just to the body, but he wants it to go to the body, the mind, the personality, the emotion, anything. Paul says, don't even let any kind of impurity be named among you. Put it away, he says, it belongs to darkness. The third thing he mentions in verse 3 is indulgence. Indulgence. Don't let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you. Greed is indulgence. It's personal indulgence. That's an ugly word, isn't it? You know, some words, just when they fall off your tongue, they just smell bad. (laughs) They just sound bad. Greed. Just think of that in your mind. Greed. That's an ugly word, isn't it? Not only ugly when it's a part of a person's life, but it's ugly just to even say it. When you think of greed, you think of somebody like Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> just loved to sit in his gold pile of gold and just throw it up in the air and he just loved it. Just greed, you know. Well, in the original language, the word that Paul uses here, greed, is a compound word. It's two words that have been put together in the Greek language. And it's the word, first of all, for the verb to have. And second of all, for the word more. And Paul just made a compound word, and it means, greed simply means to have more. To have more and more and more and more. That's what Paul says is part of the lifestyle of darkness. Greed, indulgence. Now, Paul's not talking to the possession of wealth. He's not talking about that because someone can have a lot of wealth and still not be a greedy person. But Paul is is referring to the love of things. He's referring to that point in your life when you cease to own your things and your things begin to own you. You understand what I mean? That's greed. When your whole life is built around the possession and the acquisition of things, the desire to hold on to, the desire to possess, to acquire, for the sheer love of having, Paul says, that's darkness. That's part of the lifestyle of darkness. It is not even to be named Among you. John D. Rockefeller was asked one time, How much does it take to be happy? Now, that's an interesting guy to ask that question to, but his response was very honest. He said, Just a little bit more. Did you hear that? How much does it take to be happy? And he said, Just a little bit more. That's a definition of greed. I read a couple of years ago, and it impressed me so much that I I cut the article out. And kept it in my files. And so you get the results of my filing system this morning. But I read a couple of years ago an article about how uh, the uh, certain tribes in Africa used to capture monkeys for food. They eat monkeys over there. That's right. (laughs) They eat each other sometimes too. But how they used to capture monkeys for food. And it was was a, a trap that was built around a monkey's basic attitude of greed and selfishness. And what they would do is they would take a gourd and they would hollow that gourd out and they would make the hole in the gourd just big enough for that little monkey's fist to go into that gourd. Then they would anchor the gourd down to the ground and then they would fill the gourd up with all kinds of delectable fruits, a smorgasbord of fruits that just, you know, tantalize the appetite and the the nostrils of that little monkey. And so the little monkey comes hopping down the monkey trail a little bit later and his nose catches the, the scent of all of those delectable fruits that are in the, in the gourd there. And he, he goes aside and he, and he sees that after he smells it. 
And so he puts his little greedy little fist into the gourd and his fist easily goes in and out of the gourd when it's wadded up. But then he reaches in and he grabs hold of some of those delectable fruits and then his fist is too big to come out of the gourd. And the monkey will fight and he'll kick and he'll, he'll bite and he'll scratch and he'll scream, but he will not let go of the fruit. Even when he sees his captors coming with their spears and their nets, that monkey still will not let go of his fruit. And uh, that way the natives are able to either spear him right there on the spot or drop the nets on him and capture him and eat him later whenever they got good and ready. But you see, the point is that because of that little monkey's greed, he winds up being the main course on an African's table that afternoon. That's a picture of this word that Paul is talking about. It is that attitude of life that means I must have more and more and more. Now, most of us are not monkeys, <laughs> but that's a beautiful picture of greed. Getting your hand in the gourd and then not willy, being willing to let go. Paul says that is a part of the lifestyle of darkness. That is, a, that is something that characterizes the life of the non-believer. Get all you can while you can get it and hold on to it with all of your strength and in all of your might. Paul says... That belongs to darkness, not to light. So he deals, first of all, in the walk of darkness with the lifestyle of darkness. But second, he deals with the language of darkness. Now, I told you that just having a two-point sermon doesn't mean anything because you can put all kinds of subpoints underneath each one of those points, okay? The walk of darkness, and he deals with the lifestyle of darkness, its immorality, its impurity, its indulgence. And then he deals with the language of darkness in verse 4. And he said, there must be no filthiness, or silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Did you know that there is a language of the world? Did you know that the world has its own vocabulary? Our world has its own style of communication, its own style of talk. That's darkness that is a characteristic of a lost man or a lost person. Darkness has a special dialect, if you will, of the English language. And Paul revert, refers to that in verse 4, and he, he, he uses several very interesting words. He says, there must, first of all, be no filthiness. That's part of the darkness, he says, but you're in the light, and so there should be no filthiness in your language. That word filthiness refers to any kind of vulgarity, folks. Now, let's get honest, Okay. I want you to hear this, some of you men particularly. Listen to what he says. That word filthiness refers to vulgarity. You say, James, don't be so cotton-picking pointed. Well, I can't keep from it. <laughs> the Scripture does it. The Scripture slaps me right in the face. And God says, James, slap him this morning. That's why I had a hard time preaching this message for three weeks. I really struggle with it. Notice what he says. Filthiness has nothing to do with the walk of night. It's a part of the language of the darkness. It's a part of the language of the world. And this word filthiness refers to obscenity in all of its forms. It's the language of the gutter. And it has no place in the Christian's life. It belongs to the darkness. Now hear that, you who are in the light, who know Jesus. That kind of lifestyle, that kind of language belongs to the darkness. My first crisis as a young Christian when I was a senior in high school, just after I had been saved, my very first spiritual crisis came as a result of this. I was saved when I was a senior in high school. I was saved out of the gutter, by the way. I was saved. When I was saved, if you had taken vulgarity out of my vocabulary, I wouldn't have been able to talk. 
That's the honest truth. But when I was saved as a senior in high school, God just took that away from me. He honestly did. My vocabulary changed. I was kind of like the Lord and the, the prophet in the Old Testament. I couldn't speak for a while. It took me a while. I couldn't open my mouth for a while, but God began to change my vocabulary. Well, every summer I worked in the oil field. In my hometown, if you were going to work, you were going to work in the oil field because that was all there was. And you know how the oil field is, most of you that have been around that, um, how the, the lifestyle, the language of the oil field. And, and for years before, my life, life and my language had just fit right in. I mean, I was just one of the boys, just fit right in real good. When I got saved as a senior in high school, the next summer I went back to work in the oil field after I'd graduated from high school, just before I was about to go to college. By that time, my vocabulary had been cleaned up. And I hadn't been around that kind of language in, oh, six, eight, ten months. And that summer, I got to go to work for a man in our church, uh, a deacon, as a matter of fact, of the First Baptist Church of my hometown where I had been saved. And I thought, boy, this is going to be neat. This summer, I'm going to get to work with a Christian, work for a Christian, and and I had a couple of my Christian buddies that were working with me there out there in the oil field. And this man that owned the company, I just thought this is really neat that I'm going to get to work for this guy. And one day he came out there on the location. And uh, there were four or five of us there. And most of four or five of us were boys from the youth group that just graduated from high school. And then there were the old oil field hands that were hanging around there. And the words that came out of that man's mouth when he opened his mouth on the job location literally floored me. I couldn't believe it. Now, this was a a leader, a deacon in the First Baptist Church of Monahans, Texas, a wealthy man, a respected man to some extent, a leader in the church. And I thought, man, this is going to be great. Going to get to work for a Christian. And just because he was on the location, the job location in the oil field, somehow or another, he felt like he needed to talk the talk of the world. Somehow he felt that it was expected of him to talk the way that everybody else does out in the oil field. You see, that man had a chance to be light in a dark place, yet he chose to identify with the darkness. And listen, folks, when your language is like that, like Paul describes here, you are identifying yourself with the vocabulary of the world. And Paul says, put it away. It's a part of the darkness. It has nothing to do with the light. You know, not only that, but that kind of stuff is a, really, that kind of language is a fool's sin. For a Christian to use that kind of language, it is a foolish sin. I say that because there's no satisfaction from vulgarity. There's no, no satisfaction that comes with, with filthy kind of, of talk. I'm going to get off in this in just a minute, okay? But there, <laughs> I need to say this. There's no satisfaction to it. It's, it's a fool's sin. At least in, in a sexual sin... The person's lust is satiated for a time. At least for the thief, he gets to keep sometimes what he steals. And there's a certain amount of satisfaction for that. But for the language sin, there's no satisfaction. There's no reward whatsoever but the judgment of God. And Paul says that belongs to the world. And so therefore, because you are not anymore in the darkness, but now you are light, put it away. Let there be no filthiness. And then he goes on, he says, let there be no silly talk or coarse jesting. The word jest in the original language means to turn. A literal translation of that word would mean to turn. Coarse jesting, coarse turning, if you will. And it refers to the ability to take something that is clean and turn it around and make it dirty and make it suggestive. You know what I'm talking about. You know people that every single thing you say in their presence 
they have that uncanny ability to turn it around and make something vulgar and make something dirty, make something unclean, something filthy out of it. Paul said that is out of place in the Christian's life. You who are of the light, it is out of place. It is a part of the walk of the darkness. Now, let's sum it all up here on this first point, and then we'll get on to the walk of light. He says, first of all, I want you to notice the walk of darkness. Notice the lifestyle of the darkness. It is characterized by immorality, impurity, and indulgence. Notice not only the lifestyle, but the language of darkness, filthiness, and silly talk, and coarse jesting. Put it away, he says. It belongs to the darkness. And then he says, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as a child of the light. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I want you to notice again in verse 8 that he does the same thing as he did when he referred to the darkness. He does not say you have the light. He doesn't even say you walk in the light. But notice what he says. He says you are light. You were darkness, but now you are light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned right around and said to those disciples, you are the light of the world. In other words, when you belong to the Lord Jesus, then his light becomes your light and you and I become the light of the world. So Paul says, walk as children of the light. Now in verse nine, he gives us light's fruit, the fruit of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Where the walk in the darkness is characterized by immorality, impurity, and indulgence, the fruit of the light, he says, the light, lifestyle of the light is characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth. You know what this is, verse 9? This refers to spiritual photosynthesis. Spiritual photosynthesis, the bearing of fruit. It takes light for fruit to be produced. No light, no fruit. So he says, if you have the light of Christ, then there ought to be fruit. And the fruit of the light is goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, what about your fruit? If you have the light, if you are the light, then there's got to be some fruit. Now, your, your fruit may be shriveled up a little bit. <laughs> so your fruit may look like raisins, but it's there. It's fruit. It may not be as healthy as it could be if you really let go and let God have control of your life. But if the light of Jesus is in you and if you are the light, there is going to be some fruit. I used to have an old, old deacon in southern Florida uh, that loves the Lord with all his heart. Loved to, to, to tell people about Jesus. And he was one of my closest buddies down there. And that old deacon always, he had a, a saying that... Uh, that he just loved to repeat all the time. When you talk about somebody, well, is that person really saved or is that person not saved? And, and his name was Doc, Doc Bryant. Well, Doc would always say, well, he'd say, you know, I, I'm not a judge. I can't judge. I'm just a fruit inspector. I'm just a fruit inspector. The scripture says where there's light, there's fruit. Where there's no fruit, there's no light. And so just inspect the fruit. If you want to know if the light's there, then look for the fruit. Where there's light, there's going to be fruit. And so Paul says, walk as a child of the light. If the light is in you, and notice the fruit of light, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Exactly the opposite of immorality, impurity, indulgence, but goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then notice light's function, and we'll close with that. 
life function, verse 11 and verse 13. He says, And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. That's interesting. In verse 13, he says, But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Light's function. In other words, how, what am I to do if I am the light as I go out of the world? Well, what does light do? Light dispels darkness. When you walk into a dark room, the first thing you do is turn the light on. Isn't that right? That's the function of light, to dispel darkness. And so the point is that as the light of the world, we are to go out into the world dispelling darkness. And so Paul says in verse 11, don't participate with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. How do you get rid of darkness? How do you get rid of the darkness in the world? By cursing it, by condemning it? No, by turning on the light. That's it. Turn on the light and the darkness in the world is exposed. Let the light of Jesus, let the light of Christ that is in you shine through you and expose the darkness. Now, I'm always real careful when you say that because some folks think that that means that we're supposed to be spiritual CIA agents, (laughs) you know, with a giant Bible. Go out of the world exposing the deeds of darkness, just bashing people over the head with the family Bible. Just condemning people there all the way around us. You know, that's not what the scripture says. He doesn't say you're to condemn the darkness or even to curse the darkness. He says just dispel it, expose it, be the light in the darkness. If you are the light, if you really are the light, then where you go, darkness is dispelled. And it just happens naturally. It just comes naturally. Some, every now and then, I go to the golf course by myself. I don't ever play by myself because it's a fellowship game, and I, I will not play golf by myself. But sometimes I go by myself just for fun because what will happen is the golf pro will, will pair you up with somebody. Maybe there's another guy that came by himself, and he'll put you together. Or maybe there's two guys, and he'll put you with them. Or there's three, and he'll make a foursome out of you. You're just standing around just telling him you want to get on with somebody, and he'll put you on the golf course. I did this a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, by myself. Um, when I do that, I never tell people what I do until about the sixth hole. And it's interesting what happens. You know, half the time they'll ask you on the tee box, you him around, say I'm in the insurance business or something, you know, fire insurance or whatever. Uh, and you get away with, you know, without really telling them exactly what you do. But I never, I never try to let them know right off the bat what I do. But it's interesting. After about the fifth or the sixth hole, when you can force the conversation around to talking about employment and that kind of stu- stuff, and, and you finally tell them what you do, it's interesting how many people can't hit the ball for the rest of the day. I have ruined more people's golf game just by that than I could count. Because then they can't call the ball what they used to call it. They can't curse the ball. They can't curse the golf club. They can't curse the golf cart. They can't curse the golf course. They can't curse anything because the light has exposed the darkness. Now, that's not just because I'm a preacher. I guarantee you, folks, you can go out into a dark world and go out into a dark environment and just be the light. Just be the light. Just don't join in. Just don't imitate their language. Just don't imitate their jokes. Just don't imitate their attitude. And after a little while, they'll begin to pick up on that. There's something different here. And you'll be amazed that after a little bit of time, 
how your light begins to expose that darkness. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the function of light. The fruit of light is goodness and righteousness and truth, but we also have a function as the light of the world that as we go out of the world, we don't have to be spiritual CIA agents. We just have to be consistent with the word of God and consistent with the spirit of God and the light which is in us, which we are, exposes the deeds of darkness. So let me ask you where you go, where you are, where you live. Are you the light? Does your light expose the darkness? Do you have the fruit of the light, the goodness, the righteousness, the truth? Is light's function seen in your life? Where you go, do you imitate the darkness? Do you join in with the darkness? Or does your light just expose the darkness? You know, I used to be guilty of saying, I don't want anybody to talk differently around me than they would in everyday life. I used to say that. In fact, I used to encourage people when they'd be around me if they found out I was a Christian. And this was before I was ever a pastor. Uh, they'd say, well, we got to clean up our language around the, you know, this Christian kid, this goody two-shoes guy. And I used to say, no, don't you dare. You talk around me just the way you would anywhere else because you're not accountable to me. You're accountable to God. I used to be guilty of saying that, and I have grown in that respect, and I've come to understand that that's not right. I don't want them using that kind of garbage language around me. I don't want them acting that way around me simply because of this. Because if my light is not enough to challenge their darkness, then my light is not very bright. And Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And that means that as we go out into the world, our light is to expose the darkness, as Paul said, to expose the darkness, to show it as it really is. And Christian, when somebody who, because you are a Christian and because you're committed to the word of God and, and because your lifestyle echoes and mirrors the lifestyle of Jesus, when a non-believer around you cleans up his language, you praise the Lord for that. Whenever they alter their lifestyle, because you're in the room and you're in the environment, you praise the Lord for that because that says your light is exposing the darkness. But listen, if the people that know you feel as comfortable with you as they do with any non-believer in the world, with their lifestyle, their language, or whatever, it means there's something wrong with your light. Your batteries are low and not exposing the light. Let's pray together. Father, we're about to sing, Have Your Own Way. Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have Your Way in our lives. Father, I pray this morning from the depths of my heart and my soul, God, that You will take this message, You'll apply it to our hearts and our lives, and You'll challenge us with it. I'm challenged by it, Father, by every word of it. To not walk as a darkness, but to walk in, in light, as light, and to show the fruit of that, and also to expose the darkness around us. Father, I pray that we as your people here at Cornerstone Baptist Church really and truly would become a light. We want this church to be a lighthouse, and it can't be so unless we are individually lights in our own walk with you and our own walk in the world. And so, Father, I pray that you'll take this message, your word, inspired through your spirit, through the great Apostle Paul, that you'll take these words, you'll challenge us with them, and that you'll turn on the light in our hearts and our lives as we go out. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 349.